0: Hello and welcome to Everyday Medicine. I'm Dr. Luke. Thank you for joining me in this podcast series where I'll be sharing conversations with colleagues, exploring their special interests in medicine and bringing insights, ideas and advice which I hope will be applicable for your own medical practice. In this podcast episode, we're talking with an expert about abdominal pain, in particular central mediated abdominal pain syndrome or CAPS. Now central mediated abdominal pain syndrome is a chronic recurrent condition that is not related to bowel function diet or definable organic pathologies such as inflammatory bowel disease, diverticular disease, vascular syndromes or neoplasia. It appears to be secondary to nerve sensitization, and it may develop after significant emotional trauma or gastrointestinal infections. The syndrome may be highly intrusive and disabling but can be managed by a multi-pronged approach drawing upon hypnosis, cognitive behavioural therapy, pharmacotherapy including antidepressants, with a deliberate avoidance of narcotics that are inclined to induce the narcotic bowel syndrome. In this episode, we have a conversation with an amazing pain physician who's experienced her own personal trauma and courageously re-entered the workforce at a high-functioning level in the field of pain management, whilst also counselling doctors on strategies to manage burnout, raising her young family, and writing a book, which is to be published later in 2021. Please welcome to the conversation, Dr. Olivia Ong.
1: Now, Olivia, thank you very much for joining me today, Olivia, on, on Everyday Medicine. I really appreciate you making your time uh, for me on Sunday, particularly as I'm an hour late. So I really do appreciate you making that time. Now, Olivia, your specialty is in rehabilitation and pain management, and I'd like to talk with you about um, your approach to chronic abdominal pain, but your story is much more interesting because you're also counselling people on burnout, yes, that's doctors right. on so, burnout, which is yeah. an important discussion, and, and you're writing a book, so I've got stacks of things to talk about, yeah. but how did, you, how did you get to this position um, as a pain specialist? T- tell us about your journey into, into yeah. medicine here.
2: So, my journey as a pain specialist actually dates back to my personal history. So, I was involved, I was involved in a car accident in 2008. So, I was a pedestrian mm. struck by a car. Mm. So, because of that accident, it rendered me a paraplegic. Mm. I was paralyzed from the waist down, couldn't feel my legs at all. I spent quite an extensive period of time in hospital. Mm. Um, in rehabilitation, in particular rehabilitation, learning to use the wheelchair. So that process itself took about four or five months mm. but the road ahead was pretty relentless. Mm. So I, I went through a couple of years of intensive rehabilitation. When well, you told you wouldn't be able to walk to Olivia, was that yeah. that
1: would mm. have been incredibly confronting? So yeah. where were you in your medical, your completely medical training at that point?
2: No, at the time I just started my rehabilitation medicine, medicine training right. so I was pretty
1: yeah. Pretty young at the time. Yeah. I was
2: only twenty-eight. So, did you have a family at that stage as well? Did you have children? I was Definitely. married. I, I'm. I was, I'm still. Married. I yes. was. I was married to but, but no a, just children. newly married. Yeah, yeah. for okay. two years.
1: She can No sighting. kids. Yeah. yeah. Were, were you told also by the rehabilitation people at the time that you may never walk again? Was that?
2: Yeah. Exactly. Um, his words to me was, "You, you might not be able to walk again, and you're in it for the long haul." I refused to accept yeah. that. Mm. I guess statement. So I vowed to myself that I will walk again. Mm. And that's what I did. I traveled all the way to the United States in San Diego to a recovery, spinal cord injury recovery center called Project Walk. Mm. My husband, John, came along with me. Yeah. We spent two years there. Um, it was quite an amazing experience, actually. Why you I say that is because I thought that the exoskeletons, the robotics that I got to use to help me walk again at Project Walk was the end all and be all. Mm. But I didn't realize that It taught me a lot more than life life lesson more than that. It taught me about self-compassion. So what I mean by that, I became more mindful of everything that I do. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, I had to relearn to walk again from Mm. like just like a baby, like from crawling to standing and taking little, like their first steps. I had to do the exact same process, relearn everything, relearn walking. Mm. Um, And because of that, I managed to learn about mindfulness because if I... Mm. Don't, mm-hmm. If I'm not mindful, I won't be able to learn the various steps involved mm-hmm. to walk again. And the other aspect of self-compassion that, that that experience in the United States taught me was connection and connectedness. I connected with other spinal cord injury survivors. Mm-hmm. We had a common bond together, obviously, because we um, had spinal cord injuries t- and there's lots of conversations about it.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And lastly was self-acceptance. I finally accepted my injury for what it is and just moved forward. And this is where the backstory of why I decided to become a pain specialist came Mm. about.
3: Mm. Because
2: I knew that when I went back to Melbourne, I was going to resume my rehabilitation registrar training. Mm. But I really wanted to sub-specialize in pain medicine in particular because I got to witness firsthand what suffering from chronic pain is. Mm. Mm. The fellow spinal cord injury sufferers, who are my friends, um, they went through significant chronic pain. In fact, Mm. spinal cord injury pain, neuropathic pain, it's one of the most debilitating and devastating types of pain syndromes there is. Not only they get pain above where the level of injury is, they get pain at, this, at the level itself and below the level. So you get they get several types of pain.
1: Did you experience that yourself? So when you were in San Diego from the injury, that that was something that you personally experienced firsthand?
2: Mm. Yeah, I experienced the acute pain firsthand after yes. the spinal surgery yes. I yeah. had. I did experience some degree of neuropathic pain from the spinal cord injury, but it resolved pretty quickly once I started getting therapy, um, mm. like physical therapy again. But unfortunately, the suffering I witnessed in my friends mm. um, were quite devastating because not only they were taking copious amounts of opioids, yeah. they were also taking illicit drugs, cannabis. They were just using pharma- like multiple, mm. I guess, pharmacological. Well, pharmacological well, well, that was in the United States. Yeah, and um, to, mm. Yeah, and they were just numbing themselves on the pain. Mm. I guess seeing that kind of suffering firsthand. Um, mm. Was quite heartbreaking for me,
1: mm.
2: and that was the premise behind my my yeah. you know, my driving force well, to be that's a patient. specialist. taken a lot of courage.
1: It's very mm. lonely situation having an injury. I think exactly because yeah. you're the only one that really feels that injury, and mm. you may have obviously got loving support from your husband, mm. and family, and stuff, but it's still you. Believe yeah. you're on the person with the injury. And it must be very very difficult to cope with, mm. and trying to maintain a positive outlook uh, with your medical training, wondering if you can get back into rehabilitation training, what your family is going to be. You know, with will you have. The possibility, of family, all those things must come into your mind. Um, did you get a little bit of pushback from the Australian uh, sort of rehab physicians at the time when you said well, I might actually go to the United States? And that's something you did off your own bat, I bet. Yeah, um, yeah. Was it that did that they, was they a little bit negative? Did they think, well, why would you go there? We've got things here that can offer you. Was there a little bit of negativity there? Yeah, I guess
2: they. Um, I can see where they're coming from as well, given that I'm a rehabilitation physician mm-hmm. myself. Mm-hmm. I guess they didn't want to give me false hope. But um, I guess what I really want to encourage what I wish they could be more of is to be more open-minded I guess because yeah, yeah. every patient with a neurological disability has the potential to improve mm. and we need to give mm. them that chance mm. and we need to give to validate that mm. you know if they want to have that wish or that mm. particular driving force to do that we have to respect them we cannot just like you know just yes. destroy their dreams or
1: yes. I think seeing <laughs> hope is really encouragement mm. isn't it it's it's being realistic, you never can tell. No one can really tell. Exactly. I think what exactly is going to happen mm. in most, in many circumstances. Perhaps that's not true of every statement, but in many circumstances, mm. I always feel when people say to someone who's got a, a a debilitating illness, maybe it's going to be a terminal illness, that they've got so many weeks to live, and I, mm. I just wish they wouldn't say that. I can understand. There's a mm. it helps people get their affairs in order, but I feel it also dashes hope. Yeah. And I think having hope mm. and having some something to aim for is so important when you're recovering from illness or Mm -hmm. finding an illness or coping with an illness. Um, So that's really set the groundwork for you as a pain physician. Mm -hmm. And you came back into Australia, uh, you're on your feet, you're looking tremendously fit and well. Um, You're now a qualified pain management physician. Yes, I am. And and one of the interests that you have is in abdominal pain, managing abdominal pain syndromes. That's Mm -hmm. just one of the interests. So can I just put to you, suppose I present a case to you, Mm -hmm someone that I often see in my clinical practice with abdominal pain, who I've worked up pretty carefully. I'm sure they don't have inflammatory bowel disease mm-hmm. or colorectal toler- carcinoma or mesenteric ischemia or any organic pathology you can actually think of. Mm-hmm. I've done everything I possibly can. Uh, I am at the point where I can see the patient suffering with abdominal pain, mm-hmm. but I don't really know what to do and yeah. I'm trying to avoid use of opiates and I'm going to ask you for help. Um, what is your approach to that patient?
2: Yeah. So my approach to patients with Chronic abdominal pain is first of all validate their pain, mm. and this is something that a lot of my patients actually tell me they don't feel listened to and validated. They've seen lots of specialists along the way, and by the time they come to see me, they've kind of lost hope as well. Mm. Mm. So I think what I tend to do I just let them talk talk about their just like let them vent a bit, vent a bit. a bit. Yeah, rent mm. a bit, vent a bit, and after that, I go through a process where I think I go through a an approach more holistic approach is. In our in our pain faculty of um, medicine approach, which is also my which I which is totally aligned with my approach, we call it social biopsychological approach. So yes. it's it's a re- mm. it's the it's mm. a it's a bit reverse of biopsychosocial. Right.
1: What does that What does that mean?
2: It means that we find out a bit more about who's what wow. the, what the patient is all about mm. as a person. Mm. A person like mm. who are their loved ones who are mm. who are they as an individual their identity. Mm. What are they working? Do they have hobbies? So just get a bit yeah, of clear yeah. idea about their social context. Mm, good profile. Yeah. yeah. And then after that, we explore a bit further, okay, the biological um, you know, like um, approach. Like, So usually I try to elicit what particular pain mechanisms they mm. have, whether mm. it's there's three particular types of pain that we, we see, nociceptive, uh, noc- neuropathic, and nociplastic. And in someone with chronic abdominal pain, it's very highly, li- highly likely they are nociplastics, which means that if they have neuropathic pain of the gut, it probably has transformed to a nociplastic pain. What I mean by nociplastic pain is what you, I think, gastroenterologists have identified as centrally mediated functional abdominal pain syndrome,
3: mm.
2: where mm. a lot of the chronic abdominal pain is it's already um, it's already they already centrally sensitized, yes, which means that their brain is not able to inhibit the pain signals mm. so they align the more signals to come down and hence, you know, central sensitization. Mm. And from the gut perspective, even very normal stimuli can aggravate a neuropathic pain. I think picture. it's really
1: important for us yeah. to talk about this because mm. often when we see these patients, there's a tendency, perhaps from the, uh, the more ignorant person, I and mean, mm. that's me included, just to sort of dis- dis- discount it and think, oh, they're not really feeling that much. Mm. But, but they are actually feeling that much. Yeah. It's very much true and real to them. Yeah. And it's a, it's a hypersensitivity, as you're saying, that sort of develops.
2: Exactly. Um,
1: yeah. yeah. So that's something we need to be aware of, not to discount that report of pain.
2: Exactly. I, th- um, I think that's what they actually need as well, that yeah. acknowledgement and validation yes. of their pain experience. And I guess my approach can be a bit different from some of my peers. I tend to see every patient as a storyteller. Mm. They all have a story to tell. And that, that's what it gets me, you know, excited about pain medicine, which pain medicine can be a very, um, I guess, tricky specialty to be very um, interested in. But uh, that's my main driving force and the main reason why I turn up for work every day.
1: Well, it sounds like you have the patience mm. to put into because mm. what you're discussing, trying to get a good profile of the patient and stuff, that takes time. Mm. And it, they have to be invested in the patient and really wanting a good outcome for them. I, I can suspect that that sort of conversation could take 45 minutes or so. Yeah, Even longer, yeah. an hour. You know, that's a lot of time, isn't it? To, to invest in in your consultation, and um, you know, uh, when, when you when you're busy and mm. uh, and you've got other things, uh, of course, uh, on your on your schedule. So what, once you've sort of worked out, you know, what's going on in terms of the pain and you, you
2: good determination of their profile, what sort of pharmacological therapy will you mm. will you bring in, given that the brain. Is not blocking the pain signals very very well. We need to, we, we call this a top-down approach where mm. we use psychological therapies like cognitive behavioural therapy, mindfulness to actually increase more, bl- to centrally block the pain signals. Mm. Are, are you talking about meditation there? Or yeah, meditation, mantras. mindfulness, yeah. Yeah, and then mm. sometimes hypnosis, which I think in the functional gut clinic where I um, I happen to be an observer at the Alfred Hospital, they, yeah. they use a fair bit of hypnosis there. Does that work? Yeah, do you, do you for some it? of the patients, For yes. some,
1: yeah. yeah. Well, what about the, the, the mindfulness of the meditation mm. approach? So
2: how, how does that work? I, I suspect there'll be some that will be open to that and some that just... Yeah, I think it depends on the individual patient. Some of them mm. will be quite open to it and some of them are still very entrenched in their whole pain experience and they're still suffering. Mm. So probably it's not a good time uh, for them to do that modality. So a lot of them actually have a lot of trauma, mm. I guess, history and trauma mm. events happening in their lives. Yeah. So I think in that scenario, it's better for them to be seen by a trauma-based psychologist, which is very different mm. to the psycho- the psychologist in the pain clinic. Mm. They need to deal with their trauma first and then do the pain psychology with us. So that's what I usually highly recommend my patients to do. Okay. And I'll tell my team to support that recommendation from me yes. as well. Um, one of the other approaches that I uh, medication approaches that I use for Centrally-mediated uh, functional abdominal pain will be mainly antidepressants. Mm. Antidepressants mm. such as SNRIs have proven to be quite effective. Uh, my antidepressant of choice is Desvendor vaccine or Pristig.
1: Okay.
2: How's it working, do
1: you think? What's it doing?
2: It acts centrally in the brain, so it increases the serotonin and adrenaline mm. um, universe and helps to, I guess, help with their mood and their sleep. And this is what a lot of my patients mm. notice. Yeah, they notice that they sleep better and their moods better, and then they can manage their pain a lot better because of those um, improvements in mm. th- those aspects of their life. Because I think sleep is really um, something that we do not explore very well in pain medicine, mm. and really I think that should be one of the first things that we need to explore. Because a lot of our pa- patients with chronic pain, unfortunately, don't sleep very well. No, that's right. And they, yeah. Yeah. yeah, And we all yeah. experience what it's like not to sleep very mm. much. You, know? mm. you can imagine. It's debilitating. Exactly. Quite debilitating. Yeah. yeah.
1: yeah. And then leads to other mm. medication approaches, too. Mm. which aren't always that successful. So so far we've got we've got sort of a top down. We've got the
3: mm.
1: mindfulness, mm. meta hypnosis. We've got um, the uh, SSRIs. Yeah. What what would you go for next? Patients still got pain in mm. some degree.
2: Usually as adjunctive medication, I, I like to use anti epileptics like uh, gabapentin. Okay. I prefer gabapentin to Lyrica purely because gabapentin has less side effects doesn't cause as much weight gain, doesn't cause mm. suicidality, which I've seen in some of my patients with Lyrica. Mm. I think weight gain is a big problem in patients with chronic pain because they don't move around mm. and they're not as active. Mm. So I don't usually use Lyrica. Okay. So that can be an adjunctive um, treatment option in addition to the antidepressant. What, what sort of dice um, do you start with? To the pain usually now? I'll use 100 milligrams TDS and then after a week I can bump it up to 200 milligrams TDS and then after another week, 300 TDS. Mm-hmm. Some pain specialists like to do it really quickly, ask, mm-hmm. like increase the dose within a week, mm-hmm. but I like to do it slowly because in a lot of patients with centrally mediated functional abdominal pain, a lot of them have associated conditions like fibromyalgia, yes. you know, migraines, yes. and then chronic pelvic pain, yes. interstitial cystitis, other right. central sensitization syndromes. yeah, And patients with these conditions are very sensitive to medications. Right. So my approach right. is go, you know, start slow, go slow. yes some of them may react to even that low dose of gabapentin. Sometimes with patients with fibromyalgia and uh, chronic abdominal pain, I start even 100 milligrams of gabapentin at night and that's it. And I ask the GP to increase it very slowly. What's the nice side effect that I can expect from that? From gabapentin, sedation is a very common one, mm. just like lyrica mm. And that's something I tell the patient. So mm. I'm a bit more mindful when the patient works full-time or they're mm a parent, single parent to three yes. kids. Yeah. They have to be on the ball yes. or they drive heavy machinery.
1: Yes.
2: So that's when I'm a bit, a bit more cautious and I only tell them to just start the nighttime dose and stick with that for now.
1: Okay. yeah. After that, are there other medication, do you, do you find that, that you've got four things there in a row pretty mm. much that, that you've used? Are they, is that generally enough to bring some control of the symptoms or we're not, well, I'm not hearing analgesics here at the moment? Yeah, usually those
2: two it. medications will suffice, uh, and I know that quite a number of, I guess, Doctors out there will tend to use opioids, which I'm not a big fan of. No, tell us about that. Yeah, um, typical opioids like Tarzan, Oxycontin. Mm, mm. They that, that are widely used, aren't they? Yeah, they yeah. are widely used and they cause this per- paradoxical effect called opioid induced hyperalgesia. I see a lot of my patients where, when they take higher doses of opioids, just you know, for things like back pain or neck mm, pain, they mm. can develop which is very similar to like fibromyalgia, like mm. widespread burning pain. So they develop a very similar phenomenon. They get widespread burning pain. And when I actually reduce the dose, their pain improves. Very strange. Mm. Um, mm. But this does happen even in, I, I see this a lot when patients come to me with chronic abdominal pain, they're on truckloads of opioids too. Mm. I see this in the public system more yes. so than the private. Yeah. And that actually makes their chronic abdom- abdominal pain worse because it mm. causes the visceral hyperalgesia, which is, Mm. neuropathic pain of the gut. That's how I explain to the patient. It makes it worse like opioid induced hyperalgesia. So we get worsening of visceral hyperalgesia in the gut.
1: So generally you're staying right away from from analgesic therapies we commonly consider.
2: Yeah. Mm. Even atypical opioids like you know, buprenorphine patches yeah, and yeah. the pentadol, I'll be a bit cautious as well mm, mm. in chronic abdominal pain. I, I see a lot of patients mm. being put on, like the, the yeah. sort of um,
1: fentanyl patches or whatever mm. it might be. But so we're, we're moving away from that and following exactly. sort of the algorithm that you've, mm. you've you've brought to attention. Mm. Do, what sort of percentage of patients do you feel you can normally get a resolution from? And I suspect it takes some months of tinkering and discussion mm. and psychotherapy, as mm. you say. H- roughly how many people would benefit from that? Will get a good result from that kind of algorithm that you've got. Plan.
2: It also depends on the individual, like the patient themselves, whether they are ready to accept it. Mm-hmm. So once, let's say, if they are ready to accept their condition, they're ready to take action steps to improve their condition, their, their pain condition. Chances are they will do really well. Yeah. That's why it's all. It's a mind, Not only just a mindset issue. It's the combination of the mm-hmm. approaches together. The the medical approach, which is the medication, and then the psychological and physio even physiotherapy approaches. We all work. Mm. Together And Mm. our approaches all Mm. complement each other for the well-being of the patient. So chances are that patient probably, by the time they finish our pain management program, Mm. they've developed strategies to manage their pain. Mm. Even though they have pain, they can still function at work full time. They can still manage their family. They can still do their hobbies. Mm. Yeah, so it really
1: all fulfilled life. Mm-hmm. It, it's I think it's really tremendous that you've got mm-hmm. a team and This is available mm-hmm. this service because it, it this is a relatively recent development, isn't it? Yeah, the, the, right. the pain management services. Mm-hmm. And it certainly wasn't the case. I think probably general practitioners felt mm-hmm. pretty much alone in isolated in regard to pain management in the past. Yeah. Um, I think it's tremendous what you're doing with that. That same approach, and I know it's it's not just abdominal pain. You also manage fibromyalgia. Do you have a very different approach to fibromyalgia pain, or, or do you have a similar kind of? I guess oh, another hypersensitivity type yeah. syndrome, isn't it?
2: A very similar approach, and with meds starting any medication, usually I start slow, go slow as yes, well. Yes, yes. And with fibromyalgia patients, you, we just have I have to be extremely patient with them because yeah. they usually don't just have fibromyalgia. They have lots of other yes. health issues. Yes which they also see multiple specialists. That's yeah. why I end up collaborating with multiple yes. specialists. Yeah. yeah, So I think getting collateral history from well, the GP's specialists. Well, probably not as as patient you, mm. sitting uh-huh. down and talking uh-huh. them for a
1: long period of time. Because oh, you, you yeah. know, in, in general, there's, a, there's an emphasis of getting mm. the patient out of the room, mm. which is not what we need here you know, when it's someone who's got immense patients yes. like you have to sit down and work through that. Mm. Do, do you Can I ask you about the fibromagic patients? If they are already on opiates mm. um, and they've been on them for quite some mm. time and there's a degree of, you know, I guess I could say degree of addiction mm-hmm. to that. Do you have a lot of trouble removing? Or, well, let me ask you how, do you, how do you approach that? How do you help that patient transition off those opiates? Is, is mm-hmm. that something that's possible?
2: It is possible. So with, the, with patients who have been on high-dose opiates for quite a long time, there, there are several approaches. I know some of my peers, we're talking about pain specialist peers, do ketamine infusions to mm-hmm. win the opioid down safely yes. by yeah. 50%. Right. And that is certainly something that I do, I do do sometimes as well. Yes. Get them in as an inpatient and then do a ketamine infusion, with the opioids down yeah. to a safe level. I guess in a sense they get, you know, they are supervised by the nurses. Yes. They, it's yeah. you know, in a safer setting to yes. have. How effective, how effective is that for the ketamine? Pretty effective. Um, mm. Quite a, a lot of my patients have actually come off their opioids mm. quite safely because mm. of the ketamine. And sometimes it's a patient's choice. Some of them want to go and de-escalate very quickly. Mm. That's mm. fine. Then. They have ketamine infusion, but some of my patients do not want to, that option, mm. and they want to do to do it really slowly. This is where the collaboration with the GP really comes in. Mm. So I need mm. to definitely review the patient quite regularly mm. and make sure that the GP, the patient, and myself are all on the same page on board. Yes. Yes. And usually I do like a video conference because some of my patients are in regional Victoria. Where the GP, the patient, and myself have a three-way conversation. Mm. We make sure that our patient is on track with the weaning, mm. and I think that's really important. is that clear communication
1: mm. with a plan. Yeah, yeah, yeah we, have we have
2: a plan. plan. We're weaning opioid plan because. Chances are there will be things that happen to the patient. They will right. have live events, mm. death of a yeah. loved one, stress, stressful events, mm. Mm. and then that can derail their opioid weaning plans. So that's mm. where the GP can come in to support them, mm. and that's where I can come in to support as well. So. That's really clear. Very important for the patient to be accountable mm. and to be responsible as well.
1: And that I suspect mm. the trust that you have with the patient's got a lot to do with that too. If they yeah. trust the, the clinician, yeah. they're going to be more on board with exactly. you know following following the plan because yep. they feel that they're going, they're getting somewhere. Yeah. They're on a they're on a path that's going to lead to to a good rehabilitation. Mm. Um, Aliga, thank you for running through that with me. I, I wanted to talk with you also about something else that you do because you're running a program um, for practitioners that's who true. are a little burnt out. Now yes. that's interesting. T- tell us a bit about that. What what are you doing with that? Suppose I ring up saying, Olivia, yeah. I'm absolutely buggered. I'm burnt out. Don't really feel yeah. like I want to be uh, seeing patients anymore. Just what what would you? How do you approach that?
2: So when someone comes to me uh, as a coaching client for help, uh, yeah. for help, like when they're already in yeah. in burnout, usually I go through an initial uh, consult session. Yes. Not like a medical consult, but more like as a coach. Yes. Because I'm certified mm-hmm. as a life and business coach in general. But my particular patient, um, patient, uh, my particular clients that um, that I want to help are doctors yes. who are burnt out from exams, yes. overwork. Yes. Doctors who f- who feel that quite low energy and mm. exhausted at the end of the day, mm. and also medical moms and dads who are feeling guilty not spending time with their families mm. because of their that's, work commitments. That's common. And that's common, and because of that, you know they're burnt out. So I help mm. them mm. utilize some of my methodology, uh, coaching methods. Uh, I teach them many heart-based tools like self-compassion, mindfulness, mm. and high-performance habits like mm. time management. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just to help them thrive at work yes. and at home and not burn out. Yes, that's my main one-on-one coaching program. So when, a, when, once the doctor comes in to see me, to to get coached. Usually I, where I guess I talk to the client and I get a sense where they're at with the burnout. Usually I have four pillars that I I use. That's my own approach because there are four, four pillars of burnout. There's the physical pillar, there's the emotional pillar, mental pillar, and spiritual pillar.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: So with the physical pillar, I ask a few questions like, are you eating? Uh, he- eating healthily are you even drinking water at work mm. are you drinking mm. water at mm.
3: um
2: and do you even, do you sleep well so that's the mm. physical pillar do you even exercise mm. physical pillar the emotional pillar will be questions like do they feel angrier and more frustrated than normal are they irritable over little things are they feeling quite emotional at work are they teary so mm.
3: that's mm.
2: probably the emotion that's the emotional yeah. pillar questions yeah. then the spirit and then the um the mental pillar questions will be things like are you feeling more anxious and, you know, low mood over you know, over this time? And do you experience what I we I call vicarious trauma and mm. compassion fatigue? Mm. Vicarious mm. trauma is very real, especially in pain physicians and lots of physician specialties out there mm. Mm. who experience who see patients with a mm. lot of trauma history. Yeah. They yeah. tend to Internalize that. that, internalize exactly, yeah. and they feel yeah. like they're taking on board all the trauma mm-hmm. all the negative experiences. I think when you have a patient mm-hmm. that dies, who's been
1: you've been looking after it for a long period of time,
2: mm-hmm.
1: um, you know, they've just died from their mm-hmm. illness, not, exactly. not 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 a misadventure. It's very hard sometimes to cope with that. You feel mm-hmm. terribly responsible mm-hmm. for it, and you can see the pain, and anguish in the whole family. Mm-hmm. It's. It. I could see how that would be very difficult, particularly amongst oncology.
3: Mm-hmm. Uh, I think, think oncologists,
1: so. I suspect, but.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: And
2: what, what about the spiritual side? The uh, so spiritual. Pillar questions will be things like: Have you been? Have you meditated? Have you journaled? Mm. Have mm. you mm. taken some time to reflect on things? Mm. Um, have you been out to walking in nature, hiking, mm. yeah. doing things that you love? Yeah. Basically, activities that help you connect with your soul.
3: Yeah, yeah.
2: So I, 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 I ask those questions, but I guess if they are on the moderate side of burnout, I can coach them through it. Yeah. But if it's the severe side, I'd probably recommend for them to see mm. their GP. Mm. Who Mm. in turn will probably get them to see a psychologist. Mm. Mm. But obviously, this is all in confidentiality. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's very interesting. Mm. I I
1: find uh, I cope with Mm. the rigors of whatever I do generally Mm. by doing things that are totally different. You know, a bit, it's sporting usually mm. with my, often with my sons. Okay. Boarding I love You know, getting yourself in a totally different environment. Exactly. You know, exactly. I used to go to Sri Lanka when I can and, mm. and I meet interesting people. They're totally non-medical, totally different mm. from all over the world and we're in a very unusual environment. Mm. I find that completely clears my head.
0: Exactly. I come
1: back with a huge amount of optimism and I can mm. cope again. Um, so it, it's important to have these discussions and they have probably not really had much um, amongst colleagues. Maybe they're seen as signs of weakness if you complain about these things. I'll mention mm. them more. Actually, I think at the medical student level, it's not really talked about much. Is it? They're, they've got other priorities, yeah. just getting through exactly, exams, exactly. and no one really prepares you for the um uh, the kind of real life lessons that you have as a doctor. Mm. You're also writing a book, Olivia. Here's another. Uh, here's another um, <laughs> part of the jigsaw puzzle that is Olivia. On. But what, what? Tell us about this book that we're looking forward to reading when it comes yeah. out.
2: So okay. my my book will be uh, published and probably about August yeah, this year. Right. It's called The Heart-Centeredness of Medicine, The 12 <laughs> Secret Ingredients to Nourishing a Doctor's Soul. So this book stems from my, like, my desire and passion to help doctors yes. thrive and not suffer from yes. burnout. I guess th- this is based on my observations over the years. I've seen peers mm-hmm. burn out, mm-hmm. but they don't mm-hmm. talk about it. I've seen doctors go through mental mm-hmm. health issues because of mm-hmm. burnout mm-hmm. and sadly with lost some colleagues along the way.
1: Yes, we have. Due to
2: suicides, we have. Yeah. So I am very. Uh, I guess it's affected me a lot, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. and I've talked to myself. If I, if I can write a book to prevent that one doctor from killing mm-hmm. him or herself, mm-hmm. or giving that doctor some hope that mm-hmm. there is light at the end of the burnout mm-hmm. tunnel, mm-hmm. that they shouldn't feel hopeless and helpless. That's the main reason why I wrote the book. So the twelve secret ingredients are you know, things like I won't give too much of no, away but, but but some <laughs> of the secret ingredients will include things like self-compassion, <laughs> <laughs> gratitude. Yeah. They yeah. help to nourish a doctor's soul. Oh, I with that, yeah. Yeah, and, yeah. and I put snippets of my backstory where nice. I went through my spinal cord injury as a mm. registrar and mm. how I overcame mm. the trials and tribulations, I guess, returning back to Melbourne, working mm. with an injury, um, and trying to do able bodied activity mm. you know tasks like doing a ward round, which is be quite exhausting when you're working with sticks and just trying and and for me you know I my my peers have all all have gone ahead to be physicians and here I am working 10 times harder to catch up and eventually I did and things like that just I put snippets of that um, (laughs) part of my life in there and how you know I even put snippets of part where I burnt out myself because I guess dealing with my injury full-time studying you know I set the rehab exams and the pain exams that in combination with my um, my work, yeah, and the and, family, and the family and raising a family, yeah. it's my no
1: main feat mm. um, but I, I think, Olivia, you know, the, you you are obviously a very compassionate person, thank and you, and have exactly the personality that I think people aspire mm-hmm. to as a doctor. And uh, clear that injury, which was an awful, terrible mm-hmm. thing, has given you amazing strength. And it's probably allowed you insights into health that most doctors will never have. So, thank you for sharing those thoughts with us, and best of luck with that book. I look yeah. forward to reading when thank it comes you. out. Thank you. you.
0: I'd like to thank you all for joining me in the conversation today with Dr. Olivia Ong, who I found most inspiring. I can't wait to read her book. And since the conversation and podcast episode, she's told me that she'll be partaking in a TED Talk, and this will also be incredibly interesting. I do wish her so well in all these other activities that she's involved in. During the podcast series, we will be covering a wide range of topics across many special interests. The discussions are not intended as specific medical advice for patients, but as general information only and reflect the opinions of the guests interviewed. Requests for new topics to be reviewed and comments about the conversation you've listened to are welcomed and may be emailed to manager at geohealth.com.au.